the the one thread that is common is sort of a miscommunication, lack of communication, siloing, and not that they felt like there was a lack of safety, but it, it maybe that it wouldn't have been as um, that it wasn't as in every nook and cranny of all the operations that it is present, but it isn't like part of the ethos, meaning in everything they do. And you've been at companies where that, that is the case where every discussion, every decision, every communication that is like the very, very top. And so that's, this is what I'm hearing just from people on the inside. Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Kirsten Korosek, Transportation Editor at TechCrunch. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I am the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And I'm Alex Roy, the uh, founder of the Human Driving Association and the principal of uh, Johnson & Roy Advisors, the finest consultancy in transportation. And by the way, I only asked to go third in the intros so I could say this. Whatever Ed Niedermeyer is about to say, is wrong. I don't even know what he's going to say yet, but it's, it, I disagree. Edward, kick it off. I mean, <laughs> is there even any point? I Well, I mean, I thought that we might uh, kick things off on a, on a lighthearted note here, um, just because I happen to have noticed over the last couple of days that there's a certain kind of content uh, around mobility technology and new vehicles that seems to be doing really well online these days. And that is content that makes fun of the Tesla Cybertruck. Have you have either of you noticed this? Have you noticed like uh, kind of an uptick in in content, social media chatter, sort of talking about the Cybertruck in not in not very glowing terms? Well, I know the pictures you're referring to, and we can give some context to the audience if they are unaware in a moment. But because I spend my time doing more important things than scrolling, doom scrolling through social media. Um, no, I have not been tracking the uh, general hatred directed towards um, so, a particular vehicle. So you're but out of please, touch then. Okay, got it. Got I'm it. a little out of touch. I'm a little <laughs> out of touch. I've seen the photos though. We're talking about the Cybertruck and specifically the Cybertruck that Tesla's chief designer brought to a Cars and Coffees event, correct? Yeah. Well, so there's a couple, there's been a couple waves of this. So, so first there was a bunch of these release candidate ones, which are like supposed to be pretty close to production, but not, I don't know. Tesla has a totally different way of delineating this stuff than everyone else. Uh, but they're supposed to be pretty far along and they looked really like just really, really rough. And so there's about a week or so of those kind of being posted all over. That's where it started. But then it really, this weekend, uh, Franz von Holzhausen, the head of design at Tesla brought a black wrapped one to Cars and Coffee in Malibu. And like, there, you know, the excuse that like, oh, this is an engineering mule. This isn't really supposed to reflect the final, like you don't get those excuses. Like if your head of design is off showing it in public, like the implication is this is close enough to being ready. And oh my goodness, the, uh, I mean, it's a, t- I think it's a tough design to execute well, but the execution is, is not good. Um, that's it. That's, that's your entire. No, this is what I would say. It looks like a Lego that like a three-year-old tried to put together, but didn't have the finesse to get the snaps right. So, so, and like having followed Tesla for a long time, I think what's happened here, the, 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 the sort of sea change that's taken place is that I think once upon a time, Elon, you know, like to get really involved in the development of new products. I think that's been his favorite part of, 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 of Tesla. 
but he would kind of, I think, defer to Franz von Holthausen. Like a lot of Tesla's designs are just very classic. They show like true expertise in styling. I think with Cybertruck, it marks a point where he stopped listening to his experts. He, he already kind of had stopped doing that in other areas. But but the, the problem is, is that, you know, prototyping is hard and and, and manufacturing quality is hard. And the Cybertruck's design is so uncompromising. It's these giant flat, you know, things and these big, you know, uh, slab sort of panels and there's nowhere to hide, right? If you have curves and organic aspects, little mismatches aren't as obvious, but when you, all you have is straight lines and big slabs, there's no running away from, from quality issues. And like, it looks really, really amateurish when things don't match up perfectly. And these are very, very far from, from even close to the same ballpark is perfect. Okay, again, that's your whole argument. That's it. I mean, Alex, are you? You have to, to see the pictures. You really like it? I've seen the pictures. The- I've seen okay. the pictures. First of all, this those things will improve. But let me say, even if they don't, they're delivering get the solved, car in. They're delivering the car in less than three weeks. Okay, and I'm going to say something that I've said before. The people who want this thing don't care. It's really cool. In fact, it being a little messed up, maybe also cool. Oh, and that's hilarious. So this makes me go laugh on TikTok, because... go on TikTok oh, yeah. and look for Cybertruck content. The kids love it. It's cool. It's aspirational. It's, it's crazy. It is. But, but by the way, the, you just yeah. made my point so perfectly. So I was at the Cybertruck event back in the day. It was the last event that I was invited to from Tesla. And I watched something occur that I wish like someone who an anthropologist was there to document because it was fascinating to me. When it first came out, people gasped and did not cheer. Now, there may have been some cheering in the very front, but I was in the back on these like this little stand up kind of bleacher thing. And people were openly laughing and said, like, is this a joke? Uh, I was videoing it. And so I have some of that background sound. And I heard people murmuring and they thought it was, you know, just all a hilarious joke at first. And then, of course, it, it wasn't, you know. And within two hours, people had gone from being like, I cannot believe he showed that to, you know, I, th- I think it's cool. I think it's the coolest thing I've seen. And it was a fascinating sort of evolution like behavioral to watch this crowd and like kind of get caught up in it and sort of sell themselves on this thing as being really cool when their initial reaction from many of them, at least the 50 or so people surrounding me who were not journalists, by the way, um, at that point, there was very few journalists allowed and they were mostly YouTube influencers at that point. So I feel like you're basically making the same argument that people are going to be like, no, it's cool to actually not have mismatched panels. It's actually really cool not to do that. It's it's cooler look, to have look, a car that doesn't uh, quite look, function. <laughs> that will improve. But fundamentally, this the Cybertruck is the equivalent of the arrival of cubism to art. And today, <laughs> it is, and it literally is. But, but there, like- it, it appeals to something that, Ed, don't take this personally, you that doesn't grab you the way it, other, it grabs others, which is, it is a radical and crazy alternative. Besides, you know something? What is the coolest Subaru ever made? It's any Subaru covered in mud that's been somewhere. What's the coolest Audi ever made? It's an Audi that's covered in, in grit and crap that's been blazing through the snow. What is the coolest Cybertruck? 
it's the one that looks like it came off the Escape from New York set. And if every Cybertruck looks like that off the line, I don't think that's going to matter. So, so <laughs> listen, well, I agree. Matter. I agree. I agree that I don't think it's going to matter. I, but, um, and I do agree that it is a radical design that I think a lot of people are drawn to because it's so completely different. So I will give you that. I mean, I, I was going to agree with you, Kirsten. I mean, that that experience of seeing it, like I think what happened was was people realized, oh, this is totally different than a, a typical Tesla design, and and that was jarring. And I think what happened is that it became a meme. And I think the Cybertruck as a meme, I think, Alex, this is also what you're saying, is a very successful one. It doesn't look like anything else. And yes, it very much does embody uh, a very specific vision of the future that is very plausible in its sort of grimness and fascism adjacent. <laughs> but I think it that would be the a, it would be a great character in a Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, film. it looks like a like a something from a very depressing future that we seem to be hurtling towards. And, and so I get that it resonates on that level. The issue is is that the transition from a meme to something that you actually go out and buy is like an important transition. And we don't have a lot of data on how that works. But what I my argument is that when people see you know, something that looked great in rendering, looking like a shop, a bad shop project in reality, that tra- it's going to, the crossing the chasm from meme to actual product is going to be really hard, especially when it's not particularly functional as a product. And as we are learning from, I think from, and I don't want to go too far in this, from some of the leaked specs, it basically looks like it's fundamentally uh, like a Ford Lightning with like a smaller frunk. And we still don't know the range, but it sounds like it's going to be more expensive, but like, Otherwise, no more capable or no better, in fact, less towing, I think. Um, so nobody is buying this instead of an F-150. No one. Oh, yeah, I, I would agree I with agree. that. I, I You're agree. not getting any – there are no Ford F-150 buyers who are like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to switch it up. If Tesla had like a core product pipeline that was full of compelling new products instead of just some like warmed over refreshes, like they could say, hey, we have this like – you know, instead of doing the Roadster, we're going to do this Mimi truck as like a, a – the flagship sort of, you know, attention grabbing kind of car. But instead, this is a vehicle that's supposed to compete in like the most lucrative car segment in the world, which is full size pickups in the US. And like launching a meme into that kind of market, I like, I mean, it's very bold of you to predict that it's going to be successful. And I'm going to hold you to it and make fun of you when it's not. But I think a lot of people who have never owned a pickup before are going to want this. Oh sure, <laughs> they are, and uh, define success. Define because in a way, it's already a success. It's well, just okay. another. It's another glowing pillar <laughs> in the Parthenon of of Tesla newsmaking events. <laughs> oh yeah, it's very successful newsmaking, one hundred percent. But will it be successful in like returning Tesla's you know growth trajectory and profit margins? To, to where they were, um, you know, a year or two ago. That's that's ultimately the the test of the success. If it doesn't, they've invested a lot of time and money into into a meme. Well, on that note, uh, we gave, <laughs> what else you got? <laughs> we gave we gave that a time limit. This is fun. This is a fun exercise. We're all warmed up now. Um, but on to more serious um, items, and we will find out about how the Cybertruck does maybe sometime in the next few weeks if it is in fact handled. You know at the delivery event on the end of the month. 
Wait, Kirsten, do we ever discuss Tesla's wrap options that they offer from factory? Well, I think it's interesting way to get around some of the issues that that might they might have with with their actual original steel that they rolled steel. It's the paint. Uh, it's the paint that's what, the issue. Yeah. And oh, are you talking Kirsten, about for the Cybertruck? Well, no, for yeah, the other models. But I, I, I'm curious. Does anyone know? Like, was this quote unquote bad looking Cybertruck? Was that wrap? From Tesla, I don't think they're going to like the local, you know, auto shop and saying, "Can you wrap this?" Okay, well, I'm just asking because I've seen wraps come in many shapes and sizes. This right, wrap, but like that was this the one- was at a Malibu Coffee and Cars, right? Most of the design work and stuff that's happening, my understanding is, at least where Franz mostly operates out of, is the Design Center, which is an, out of LA, and so I, you know, I'm sure it was done in house. They're not going to be, you know going to some local shop for that. Maybe they brought someone in and did it their custom job. But we, we've been talking about this too long already. But I will <laughs> say that there is interesting gaps and there's like, looks like what is tape holding the windshield and some other hilarious um, things. I, I love it. I love it. Just yeah. like that. Okay. And you heard it here first. Alex loves it. Okay. Moving on to some, uh, to a, a, I think a more existential, certainly more existentially important um, topic is uh, the continuing drama with with crews, and so since we we last talked, they did pause operations, and I just um, and, but there's been a lot that's happened since there. But I do want to note something. I was working on a story about how um, actually within a day of being suspended, prior to pausing all their driverless operations on their own, they had actually um, cleared internally. A driverless for Miami and had put two vehicles on the road. Um, and so there was a day between the DMV suspension, the decision to pause um, all driverless operations in um, across their fleets, where they were continuing as normal in a way, which was interesting. Um, but then they ended up then they ended up, ended up pausing all the operations. But since then, more stories, more um, uh, reporters from other publications uh, beyond TechCrunch have have uh, unearthed some really interesting documentation. One is from The Intercept. Um, I believe Forbes also had uh, the scoop that they were going to stop production of The Origin, which makes sense. Um, and then today, um, it'll be a few days later since this recording, but um, Cruise recalled all 950 of its robo-taxis. We now know the fleet size. Um, and it's to do with the specifically how the autonomous vehicle system handled post-crash with the pedestrian, meaning they had run over the pedestrian. They had braked and run over. There's a pedestrian hit by a human driving driven car, but then proceeded to decide that it was going to pull over Um to get out of the way and ended up dragging that, that person. And so that's what the recall is about. So I'd love to hear y'all's opinion about what has gone down. Are they making all the right moves? Is it going to get worse? What are your thoughts? Alex, you, you want launch in on this. Well, uh, I don't want to start off on a full negative, because that's just too obvious. Well, let's start this. Did they make the they made the right move? You agree that they made the right move in pausing all their driverless operations, correct? Yes. Pausing driverless makes sense. Recalling the vehicles for a software update makes sense. 
of course, we don't know what the update is specifically, but it suggests that they know exactly what it is before exponents, the firm brought in from outside to look at the problems, uh, makes their determination. So that's indicative of something else. <laughs> so, but I can only speculate. I initially think about exponent, exponent is that there's a bunch of, apparently a lot of ex-Tesla people there, which is kind of interesting. So just exponent is the, the research firm that is apparently, you know, putting science-based tools towards a technical analysis of the software. And then the law firm that was fi- was hired is more of an assessment of how Cruz handled the situation. And also, probably- Tesla's, Tesla's law firm. <laughs> Correct, yes. Um, and and it's, it's likely um, being used to understand their um, exposure to liability, is my guess. Um, no, and no I've had a number of people, this is not my particular theory necessarily, because I think it's a little too early to tell, but I've had a number of people reach out to me and suggest that this is also um, pulling together documentation to get rid of some people at Cruz, specifically the high, the highest leadership. But that's, again, not my theory. This is just a few people so- in the industry have you know, relayed that to me. My, my source is telling me that our last episode was posted to internal Slack at Cruise, like a transcript of it and being discussed. Uh, and also that, um, there's disarray in, uh, at the top about what should be done. Um, but you know, something, my first reaction to all this is that every single panel and discussion and quote unquote expert and all these people who want to discuss AI ethics are, focus the wrong thing. AI ethics are the ethics of whomever designed it and the processes and protocols behind a business that uses it. Because there are many companies building autonomous vehicles and all using a variety of hardware and software that from to an outsider look the same. They're not the same. And basic decisions, ethical decisions that about how it's deployed and when lead to things like this or... So I'm actually surprised at, at the cascading series of suboptimal decisions that led Cruz here because some of them were comms, but most of them were not. It's too bad because this morning there was a blog rolled out from, or a few days ago, because it's the delay of the episode, a blog rolled out by everybody's favorite uh, Luddite, Paris Marx, saying self-driving cars still aren't the future. Again, conflating every company in the sector with the errors of one. And I, this is not helpful. What is helpful be transparency and speed and whatever Cruz does about this. And I actually think they're moving too slowly. I think that Kyle or someone next to him should have right at the top said, move a lot faster. I don't know. I would even maybe stand down the fleet with safety drivers just as a, as a show of commitment. Oh, I see. You, when you, when you meant move faster, not move uh, for, for a half a second there, I thought you were saying move faster, like on no, scaling. Like, what you were saying is I mean, it should have been an, an immediate pause from the very beginning to determine what was going no on vehicles, be yeah, cautious. No yeah. 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 Correct. Got I it. mean, like even their announcement, uh, their most recent blog post where they, they announced all these things are going to do announced that they're appointing a chief safety officer now 
(laughs) Right. That was actually surprising to me because like, this is something that, you know, other firms have, other companies have had in place. Of course, I will say this, and, and I'm not suggesting very clearly here for a moment that any company who does have a chief safety officer, that it's just window dressing. But it's one thing to have someone who's a quote unquote chief safety officer. That is only, in my view, part of what is a extremely long tail of decisions to build a safety culture. That's a very different thing. And what I've heard from insiders at Cruise, and I've talked to multiple of them, and if you want to talk to me, please reach out, um, is that there seems to be some siloed, there seems siloed questions, uh, siloing of things. Um, One um, engineer I spoke to had no idea about that that safety data that um, the Intercept had put out. They said they were on a completely different team and didn't even know about that. Um, and, and that they felt like even during their last all hands, um, that there was just a lot of non-answers. And so when you're hearing this from, um, employees, right. Who are volunteering the information and talking about it. Sure. Some of them might be already like feeling disillusioned or whatever, but it really, the the one thread that is common is sort of a miscommunication, lack of communication, siloing, and not that they felt like there was a lack of safety, but it, it maybe that it wouldn't have been as um, that it wasn't as in every nook and cranny of all the operations that it is present, but it isn't like part of the ethos, meaning in everything they do. And you've been at companies where that that is the case, where every discussion, every decision, every communication, that is like the very, very top. And so that's, this is what I'm hearing just from people on the inside. So, so, and just the, the intercept reporting was, was interesting. It's very hard to, to tell exactly what they have and like the materials they got out of from inside crews and, and, and the context for it, whatever. So I don't want to lean too hard on, on some of that reporting, but I think it is really worth noting that at some point somewhere, there's been, you know, concerns raised inside crews about like the system's inability to classify children as being something different than adults and 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 to avoid hitting them. And I think, you know, when you look at things like, you know, how fast cruise has been expanding, but also at the same time that cruise also only operates at night. Like it makes you wonder, are they cutting the, that corner, right? Is it, do they have a problem and that they kind of know about it? And that's why they're doing it at night is because they think the odds of, of children being around are less good. Frankly, if, if that is, and again, I, I, I don't know, like all we can do is piece together the information we have. If that is the, the deal, that's huge. That's a, that's a really, really big issue. And I think there was a line here in the same story, um, from Bryant Walker Smith, uh, uh, who's a professor, one of the, uh, you know, better commentators, I think, on on sort of some of these issues. I love this quote because it really gets the heart of the issue here. These are not self-driving cars. These are cars driven by their companies. And I think that that's the, the heart of like, this is where the technological problem and the comms problem come together in this quote exactly. Because, you know, the reality is, is that like how you operate in every single way as a company, everything that you do reflects who you are and what your values are. And, you know, if you're not being transparent about it, then all people have to go on are little things that get leaked or or what happens in public and drips, right? And so, and so, you know, comms is so central to all of this. 
Um, because, you know, fundamentally, you know, you are, it's, it's the company that is driving the car, the company in a way, the public and, and government regulators essentially have to treat the company like the way, you know, state driving tests, you know, treat a, treat a, a human, right? Like, like we currently license human beings to drive on the public road. Part of the struggle of moving to, towards an autonomous vehicle world is trying to figure out how do we assess companies, right? Like, obviously we're not going to assess a company on things like eyesight or, or, you know, you need extra testing above a certain age or things like that, that we have to kind of put, put in the case of humans, there are other ways. And ultimately, you know, by resisting regulation and kind of operating in this free-for-all kind of these companies are, are kind of putting themselves in a position where ultimately they're being judged in the court of popular opinion. And so, you know, that was a choice that they made. And, and, and now here we are, yeah, you know. Yeah, I think that the lack of re- regulation. Sorry, Alex. The lack of regulation has, um, or the patchwork of regulation, has allowed, um, you know, companies to quite honestly pick and choose. I mean, uh, California's is regulated um, far more than, let's say, Texas or Arizona, um, but it's also where a lot of the talent has has existed in California, so it was sort of defaulted there. But moving forward. I think that this patchwork means that companies are never going to be held to a federal standard. And so they will go to where the opportunity lies and where it's easiest to operate, which isn't great for the industry overall in the long term. Um, It would be much better and and a much greater level of certainty for all involved if there was a singular regulation um, at a federal level, in my opinion, um, and that operationally, then cities could also make their own decisions about whether it works for their community. Um, but like you uh, pointed out to Ed, like a license, for instance, of some kind, something that uh, correctly assesses the system. And then from there, at a very local level, a city can decide whether they can, you know, should be given a permit to, let's say, operate. But in terms of the licensing, I think it would be better if it was at a federal level. Do you think that the Uber situation, because like, right, when we have a little bit of a precedent for this and and what Uber did was, right, they they stopped, they shut everything down. Uh, they brought in uh, the former uh, NTSB member, um, I'm, whose name I'm blanking on. He was a guest on the show. Chris, Chris. Uh, um... Yes. Oof. Anyway, it's like one of our, one of our very early guests on the show. Uh, it's been many years now though. Uh, uh, but they brought him in and, and like they built, they, that was sort of the origin of, a safety case framework that has now been inherited, right? It didn't save Uber ATG as, a, as an independent entity. It got rolled into Aurora. But that safety uh, case framework that was developed as an outgrowth of that sort of deep internal reflection about how, how do we think about safety as an organization has become really central to Aurora. And I think it's, for me, one of the, the examples of how you know AV companies could build public trust, which is clearly like super, super important. So I agree with you, Kirsten. There needs to be some federal um, regulation here. There needs to be standard uh, harmonization because the claims by the AV companies and the misinformation by the opponents uh, is so pervasive now that no company could possibly have the time or resources to fight this battle over and over about whether or not they should deploy. Um, And a great example of that and I want to say it's, it's not deliberate misinformation, but it's a lack of context. The uh, the intercept story uh, talks about you know crews being unable to identify kids 
in simulation. And the takeaway by almost everyone I know has been, well, they knew that crews can't see kids, they shouldn't be on the, on the streets. Let's be really clear. I'm not defending crews on this point, but the, the, the role of simulation is essential to understand. It is, simulation is where you want every failure to occur. If a vehicle strikes and kills 50 people, you want that to happen in simulation. And you want to keep simulating that until the error that led to that in simulation is eliminated. And the point of simulation is that simulation never ends. You're doing it every day forever because you're always trying to sim and fix the problems um, that occur in sim. And then you have a virtuous cycle where you test the updated software on the street with a safety driver and then go back to sim with whatever you learn next. So Cruz's apparent sin here isn't that they couldn't see kids in sim or that they had some issues with what's called a, a classifier in their perception stack in sim. It's that they were rolling out the software that led to that issue well, they may have been rolling out with software that lets that issue in SIM on the street driverless. If they were rolling that software out with a safety operator while SIMming um, the software issue, that's okay. Because what's supposed to happen, I saw this at Argo, is every day the safety operators, or Argo called them test specialists, would drive around or watch the vehicle drive. And when something occurred that was suboptimal, the person in the right seat would make a note of it. And that night, SIM would check it, and there'd be a software update on that issue. And then every so often in the morning uh, before the fleet was rolled out with those test specialists, a manager would come out, and I was in the room for this many times, and say, hey, the notes you took last week have led to a software update. Pay close attention when you roll down that same street this time. We believe the software update has resolved this. And the test specialists would be specifically paying attention to observe that issue and whether or not it had been resolved. This is exactly what you want to have happen. And that intercept story doesn't go into the details around what happened in SIM and whether or not crews handle it correctly, because they may have. We don't know. We just don't know enough. And so the distinction, the nuance that I just laid out for you is going to be is completely lost in the majority of people reading that story and lost probably on the majority of city officials or regulators who may look at this. So harmonization is essential. So AV companies have the opportunity to explain what I just did and be transparent about it at a federal level once and move on. I would all, uh, yeah, and I, 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 um, I agree with you and those are really great points. And I would also say that at the same exact time, maybe not do what Cruz did in the public eye, which would, it would just be so ideological. And, and we had a whole episode about this. Uh, when they had the ad in the New York Times. And uh, a few people who, I don't know, I guess they troll me. Um, I don't really know. Like They seem to be think that I'm somehow complicit just because my job is to write about everything that uh, robotaxi companies do. That when I had Kyle on stage that I wasn't, I didn't rip him to shreds. Although actually I had dozens of people tell me that it was, I was too hard on him. So who knows? But um, maybe not do what Kyle did, which was, he on our stage and he, you know, and he has, he has said this in other places, talk about the four-year-old little girl who was hurt by a human driver. If you're, if you know, yeah, everything you said, Alex is absolutely correct in terms of like the, the, a federal, federal guideline of licensing regulatory framework. Um, also 
spelling out what really needs to happen in sim and and why if they were doing this while driverless it's a huge error but on top of that then don't also publicly tout the safety record of your company and equate it to saving lives if we and and, and then also kind of take advantage of you know uh, a child who was struck by a human driver and and sort of raise a fist to that because that is only going to come back and hurt you. And it's it's one of these things where I think when you get in the way, when, when your ideology gets in the way, um, you stop really thinking logically about how do we best and most safely get something like this, this technology on the road? Like put your ideology aside. Go ahead. So my other comment, and it's, it's, it's a really big problem, and Ed's going to love me for saying this, is that in, um, since the New York Times article uh, was published last week, which talked about um, the presence of remote operations in, the, in cruise. And we the need to have a whole those, episode on, on having – I'm glad, we I'm glad have you brought this up. About, yeah. 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 So, yeah. so there, there is – if one takes a step back, I mean, no AV company, not Waymo or Cruise or Argo or Emotional, has ever volunteer, preemptively said, hey, here's how remote operations work. Here's the ratio of remote operators or managers to vehicle, yada, yada, yada. Until now, when Cruise was, I would say, forced to or reluctantly forced to. Well, I mean, Kyle weighed in on it on Hacker News, which was an interesting decision. But yes, now we know more information. So the the problem, the big problem is that a few people have said, oh my God, there's human people in the loop with a self-driving car. And then Gary Marcus, who's a very credible AI expert, who's you know most most recently famous for uh, sparring with Jan LeCun, Facebook's uh, AI guy, uh, debating whether or not LLMs are of any value. And Gary Marcus is on the side of skepticism. He's like, well, there's value here, but it's exaggerated and hyped out. Marcus last week wrote something say, stating that uh, the promise of autonomous vehicles is basically, it's, it's all nonsense because they all have remote operators involved. This is a very, uh, I, I, this is the first time ever I've really disagreed with Marcus on anything. And I'm going to say what, what every self-driving company should have said years ago. They should have said autonomous vehicles are a product like any other, and there's no product on the planet that is sold or rented or deployed ever without a customer service function. And what these remote operations teams do is a customer service function. In a perfect world, AVs would not need a customer service ever, but everything does sooner or later. And the ratio of a, of you know, vehicles to a, an operator uh, at, at a, some office would be hundreds or thousands to one. But to get there, you have to start somewhere. The where you don't want to be is one vehicle with one remote operator, because then you might as well just have a driver in the car. So the most important figure isn't how many cars per operator or the frequency of, of um, communication between them. It's the rate at which that ratio is improving at a safe rate, at safely. That's the only number that matters. Because if a company starts off one-to-one and gets to five-to-one and 10-to-one and 100-to-one without incident, fantastic. Great. That means they are going to achieve some metric, which gets them to profitability. But if a company doesn't improve and is unsafe on the way, that's a company that's in crisis. And this needs to, this again, nuance needs to be understood before people assume 
that there's a problem because remote operations exist. And now here's my punchline and Ed can weigh in. The reason that anyone thinks that autonomous vehicles can operate without customer service functions, a person somewhere remotely, there's only one reason for it. It's because Elon Musk poisoned the well years ago by stating that level five was going to happen and don't worry about it. And Tesla would, you know, uh, implicitly would just get there and that there would ever be a vehicle on the road that would not require a call center. And as we know, Tesla, which claims to be running, you know, work at Robotaxi and deploying Tesla network someday, does not have such a call center. Whereas Waymo and Cruise and Motional all do. Argo was working on one too. So these, this nuance is apparently lost even on very smart people. And this is a problem. Yeah, it, it really is. So, so I'm glad you brought up this teleoperations issue because, um, this is it's a it's a classic example of something. So I, I was at you know Partners for Automated Vehicle Education for you know nearly two years, and one of the things that I sort of tried to make the point over and over again to the members of that organization is like, look, you either get you either talk about what's going on proactively, so that when something we all know bad things are going to happen at some point, like like when those bad things happen, you've you've built a context for it, right? You've established it and you've done it in a proactive way instead of a reactive way. And if you, and, and, and for me at teleoperation, I said, this is one of the things that you guys, we have to be more upfront about because, you know, when you, when you, in the midst of a crisis like this, and I'll tell you, you see all over social media, you know, with crews, you know, not just crews, like having all this bad reporting come out, but then that being kind of broadly applied to all AVs. And then you put this, this revelation from this New York times article that, that, you know, there's, um, you know, a, a, a really a lot of, of, of sort of human intervention going on. And people are like, it's not even autonomous anyway. Like this is all just, right. It, it, it spirals out of control. And I think this is a metaphor, you know, this is a, it's a big issue with this one thing, right. Where it's like, if you're not proactively talking about exactly as, as Alex said, this is something that we, we have to have now. It's part of, you know, a safe system, it's also, we're not, you know, it's not the same. Having remote operation is not the same as having a safety operator behind the wheel ready to take over in a safety critical situation. These are two distinct things. Again, this has to be, you know, explained uh, in a, in a non-fraught environment. Now that we're in a fraught environment, no one's going to believe you, right? And, and this is the, this is the hole that Cruise has to dig out of now. And frankly, it's not just Cruise. By, by, by getting itself into the situation, this is now a hole the rest, everybody in the industry has to dig their way out of. And I, you know, I think that, you know, there's a, you know, there, there's definitely an awareness in the industry, right? This is why PAVE was created, was there's an understanding that like, there's this huge gap between, you know, what the public understands and, and what's actually happening. And that inevitably bad things are going to happen and that people are going to misinterpret what's going on because they don't have the information they're working with. Like that, that clearly there's a deep gut level understanding of that in the industry. Otherwise PAVE would not have been created. The problem is, is that nobody committed to it. And, and it's not, I'm not criticizing PAVE here. You know, uh, it's not just that they should have put more resources into PAVE, although I think that would have been a, a, a really smart idea in retrospect. It's that there has to be sort of like, it's not just a, you can't just outsource that, right? You a you have to do education through an industry group like Pave, but also as individual companies, everybody does have to be like actually committed to building that trust and getting this information out there. So you educate people proactively and not just after bad things happen. So, you know, this isn't super helpful in terms of like how do we get out of this hole, 
But like one of the steps forward from here has to be doubling down on public education and transparency because otherwise like things like this will happen again. And if, if we get into a situation where, you know, uh, an incident like this prompts new reporting um, about teleoperation, about anything else, people are going to interpret it in the worst light ever and you'll never and, and we'll, we'll just be stuck here. So I have a question for you both, but a quick statement first. I've always equated the whole teleops, remote assistance, and all of the extreme reticence to the point of not wanting to talk about it at all from every company as this silliness around kind of wanting autonomous vehicles to seem like magic and and that this fear that if people knew how it was made and operated they wouldn't be as impressed oh it's just a bunch of people remote controlling it well who cares and they didn't think of it through a different lens which is actually if presented in the correct way and through a lot of education and just being completely transparent it would have been seen as a benefit as a as an extra fail safe as a thing to make things and so my question is why did companies and i mean this has been going on for years every single time i've asked any company really about this it's like they it's immediate silence or very little information it's like and and very difficult to get that information out so why the stigma attached to it okay so uh i've been in the room with people from multiple companies and asked when I was at Argo and asked that very question. Basically, because no one knows what the other guy's teleop looks like or how it functions exactly, no company wants to be the first to say, here's how ours works, what our ratios are, and our rate of improvement. Because if and the other companies, the next, like a minute later, be like, oh, ours is better. And here's our number. And here's, so no one wanted to be the first with, you know, to come to the table with that. And also, because everyone's living under the shadow of Musk having poisoned the well here, uh, there, was, there was a lot of reluctance because of the general public perception that any human in the loop is a failure of technology or indicates a weakness in technology relative to. Tesla. It's literally that because I'm aware of more than one company that has a really good system. Like they, they do it really well and the ratios are improving and uh, it's what you would want. And then the second thing is a failure of imagination. If you, if five, seven years ago, someone probably would have had to have been Waymo because they were the first to figure this out and they're the furthest down the development path of having a deep operational depth of bench and doing this the way you'd want to see it done. They would have had to have come out when the first critics came out and said, oh, no driver, but uh, that sucks. If they had come out that, someone had come out at that point and said, but we're replacing the driver or we're substituting a driver with the world's greatest remote customer service function that can do way more than a driver ever could, safer and more reliably, and we're hiring. They could have traded, <laughs> they could have traded a problem that didn't exist yet for a selling point. That also resolves the, the perceived job loss to automation issue. So it's killed two or three birds of one stone. And that, it's, it's in the past, but that's how one might have done it. And now they're going to be probably um, 
the, I don't want to say forced, but everyone's going to have to be more transparent because of the apparent sins of one company. I, I, I want to give credit where due. So when I was at, so Zooks was the one full stack company that did do a little uh, video panel discussion uh, about teleop. They were willing to be more open about it. I, you know, whether they, there was enough there to make any kind of difference, but probably not, but the, but they, the willingness was there. They understood that issue. So I want to, I want to make sure that they, they get credit for it. But, but I think to take your idea, I think it would be fascinating to see someone like a Waymo, right. Who's still out there operating driverlessly. I don't think right now, in fact, I'm almost, I'm like 90% sure that like, if you're in a Waymo driverless robotaxi and there is some form of human intervention, it doesn't show you that on the, on the little thing. I think that transparency, that's one little step is work that into the UI just so people know, just to normalize it. And that way, you know, you can get influencers doing videos and showing the ride and like, Hey, there's some really bizarre circumstances here. And like the car got stuck. And like, I know that someone in a remote thing, you know, added a little bit of whatever it was that they did, that some transparency of that into the experience so that it no longer feels like these companies are fooling anyone, that they really are being transparent about that. I think some small steps could, could go a long way. The other thing is um, Missy Cummings has grown increasingly negative in general on, on just automation and AI. Um, we should have her back on to discuss her point of view. But she posted something that was good to see, uh, which is um, – a paper about the different types of teleoperation. But the 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 document that really I think is important, Alan Podhurst from a company called DriveU, which is a teleoperation company, published a taxonomy of teleoperation, which is even more comprehensive than Missy's paper. And he is trying to solve for teleop and therefore AV what SAE failed to solve with the level definitions of automation years ago. And so imagine if SAE had never published any paper of any kind and everyone was rolling out different uh, driver assistance and AV and every and it was even worse than we have today in terms of understanding what anything means. Well, that's what AirTeleop is now. And I've only heard two lonely voices, Missy and Alan, trying to put definitions to the different forms of it. And this is essential because teleop is a continuum. And on one end, you have the most conservative approach, which is what all the big stack companies use, which is as, could be as simple as a go, no go command remotely issued with minimal latency and minimal data transfer. And therefore, the vehicle is using onboard sensors and hardware to execute the command, a go, no go. It could be just next to that, which is here are waypoints to follow. Again, a very conservative approach. But the other end of teleop is a steering wheel with screens at, at high speed, <laughs> which is, as many other experts better than myself have pointed out, a much less conservative approach. And I won't comment on them being unsafe, but on the continuum of safety, the safety safest approach is the one that the AV companies are already using. And this needs to be understood because there are a lot of people out there who think that there's rooms full of people with steering wheels secretly hidden away in the basement, including Chris's basement. Anyway, this is this needs to be solved. So everyone should check out Missy's paper and Alon's paper. So I'm glad you brought that up and um, we're coming up here on time. Um, I know that's your line typically, Alex, but just noticed – uh, I've been wanting for there's so many different terms used in teleoperations because there are the companies that do have 
by the way. Um, and they've most of them have pivoted to like where dark warehouses and stuff like that, but is using a literal steering wheel or joystick type of situation. But then there's um, other terms that are used, remote assistance or remote guidance, and and they're all kind of mixed and matched. And we don't really know uh, what any one company is doing. And the way they think of a particular word might be different, same word, but totally different functionality in a different company. So there's 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 no um, th- there's no standard within the industry. And I'm not saying it needs to be regulated. I'm saying that there's just no agreement within the industry. On top of that, just they internally feel like the stigma and it's almost like a the dirty secret, the dirty word. And and it's it's become that then, right? Um as opposed to what like Ed suggested and what you suggested. And so it's like every time I've asked, they've played up the assist the customer service part in some cases. But um not explaining at all what's happening on the other end. Um, I mean, little bits and pieces. I shouldn't say that there's never been any information, but very little information. I'll give you an example of why you want this function forever at whatever ratio is is both safe and profitable. Because in the future, someone's going to arrive somewhere and the vehicle came to its default safe location, drop them off, and there'll be nobody around. Uh, no traffic, no one else around. Maybe it's a woman alone at night. Maybe it's someone who can't see and they'll want to be dropped off closer to their front door. And the default setting for drop-off may be very conservative, but the allowable setting, the what the customer wants, may be much closer to their door. And you ping customer service and then they will say, yeah, nobody around, that's okay. This is a basic customer service function. Anyway, I'm, I'm done ranting. I'm so upset about that. I'm done ranting. We, okay. we, are, we are running low on time. I did have a, a kind of like sort of final thought for now, at least on my end, uh, which kind of brings us a little bit back up to sort of the early part of our conversation, which is, you know, I've followed GM's history closely enough to know that when they start hiring outside investigators, I, I, I've seen how that plays out with like the ignition switch and, and without litigating ancient history, uh, you know, it, it felt a lot more like, you know, bringing in those outsiders was, it felt a lot more like a cover up than a real coming to terms with sort of the, the deep cultural issues. And, you know, GM is a much bigger company than Cruise. And I think with, with Cruise, there is an opportunity to, to address their fundamental issues. At least I, I really hope there is. Um, but but I think the critical key, and this is it kind of comes down to one thing for me, which is they need to not treat this like a response, like the response is can't be to this incident. The, this incident is just a long tail effect of their fundamental approach to how they've run their company. And I think that's that there needs to be something in their response to this that doesn't, it's not just them saying we get it now, but like really showing in a meaningful way that like we're not just trying to prevent this specific incident from happening again. We we understand that this incident is a like reflects sort of deep sort of cultural issues with with how we've been approaching uh this business. And I would say to make that a little bit more specific, one just idea that I think uh, is an interesting one to, to chew on, not just for crews, but I think for everybody in this space. Um, but the idea of having a red team, uh, this is something that's kind of come into more uh, uh, prominence in, in recent decades. You mean my old job at Argo? So I, I think that that's, you know, you, you've been cagey <laughs> about exactly what all- We have a whole episode on Alex's old job, maybe. You did, but but I think fundamentally having more internal criticism, having people whose, whose job it is to to 
you know, break, you know, I think a lot of times, you know, these high stakes startups, there's just a lot of pressure for everyone to kind of go along. And if we all sort of believe this thing and push this worldview that we'll just sort of will it into reality. And I think you have to, in a safety critical technology use case like this, you've got to have people who are internally empowered to question everything from engineering decisions to deployment decisions, driverless decisions, but, but especially I think, uh, or, or as importantly as all those communications and and sort of the public facing aspects of all this, um, because they are they're every bit as important. So that's kind of what I think every every uh, AV company should be at least thinking about. And and and, and, and I have to say one more thing, Kirsten. Can I say one more? Yeah, brief, please. Brief I'll give you the last. Like, the the cruise thing. I've said before. I want them to survive because the industry needs competition. I've said that before. But I'm also really upset about it for a personal reason. Um, I was in the room at Argo with Ryan Selesky and other leadership multiple times discussing it's like when Cruz would announce, we're on driverless, we're doing X, we're doing Y. And we would sit there, you know, and debate like, well, how are they doing that? Like what what was their metric or what led them to that point and whether we should follow? And we always defaulted to a conservative safety at first approach. <laughs> which is we're, we're just never going to do anything for hype. We're only going to do it when we feel comfortable doing it. Cruz was rewarded for forward-leaning statements and actions in that they kept raising mountains more money and kept going. And I believe, this purse just me, I think Argo was fundamentally punished for being the most conservative player in the big leagues. And it's and I, and I feel it like deep in my heart, like the they were the good guys. And... Uh, because they were never willing to compromise on safety to for public effect, and this that type of behavior should not be rewarded. And well, now the chickens are coming home to roost. Okay. So. And on that note, uh, thanks, guys. Well, actually, no. And- uh, well, we we can't wrap it up. Atonic Cast is having the party that matters at CES. We will be releasing details about it very soon. Very soon. I'm not sure why you're advertising this because we have such a limited guest list and, and no, it's, it's not the guests. It's the sp- rules. I say this not ah. for the guests because we are way going to have more people want to come than we can accommodate. And that's never going to change. It's the nature of our party. However, we have an amazing list of sponsors, but there's always room for one more. If you would like to have your name attached to the most important event, public event in transportation, you can reach out to the Atonicast. You can reach out to Alex at theatonicast.com. So wait, it's just Alex at atonicast.com. Or hit me up um, DM. Alex for, edit, is not wait, a- Alex for 144 on any platform. I'm waiting for you. There, there you go. One small edit to that. It is not public event. So it's okay, invited. When I say public, I mean it's an event that if we <laughs> deign to allow you to come, you can come. Yes. But there are events that are so secret that no one knows about them. Right. We're not one of Right. Okay. Fair. Okay. Well, thank you for that uh, public service announcement. And thank you to our listeners to tuning in to another episode of the Atonicast. <laughs>